Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 15th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Justice for one is justice for all. The message from the Bloody Sunday families was clear. There has been much praise for the great dignity shown by relatives of the 14 people who were murdered marching for civil rights by the British Army in January of 1972. Yesterday, the Director of Public Prosecutions, Stephen Heron, announced the decision to prosecute Soldier F for the murders of James Ray and William McKinney and for the attempted murders of Joseph Frile, Michael Quinn, Joe Mahan and Patrick O'Donnell. Their victory is our victory, the family said yesterday, as many in Derry, across this island and around the world wondered how just one of the 17 living soldiers faces prosecution and what of justice for the eight of the dead if no prosecution is to be taken in respect of their murders whatsoever. Tony Dard is chair of uh, the Bloody Sunday Trust. His father, Patrick, was shot dead on Bloody Sunday and he's on the line. Good morning to you, Tony, and thanks for joining us. Uh, your father, Paddy, would be about 86, I think, today. He was 31 was when he was shot. Uh, you were just nine years of age yourself, playing marbles on the street when the news came in. What do you remember of 1972? Well, that's, that, that's what I... Um do remember? I mean, something something happened at a very, at a very bleak time. Nineteen seventy-two was the worst year of the of the conflict, and it it was it was set up in, in, in a sense by the actions of the parachute regiment uh, in, in in this city. Um, I was a young boy when it, when it happened, uh, and I was told in, in, in the streets and the way that in the way that news carries um, along streets. Um, obviously, long before um, technology um, aided it, the, the, the news was carried um, on foot and, and by word of mouth, and, and eventually reached our our door. Um, probably not that long after uh, he was actually killed, and the rest of them had been killed. I would say less than an hour. Um, so it's not a. I, I wouldn't wish it on any any uh, any child uh, to, to have. They need to, I suppose, love the the experience that we've that, that we've had. Uh, it's not a very pleasant one, but 
at the same time, we have we we as you mentioned there in your in your headline, um, we take uh, great uh, we take and give great solidarity uh, to and from the our families involved, and and indeed many our families who uh, whose whose loved ones were were. Um, were, were were killed on on lonely roads and whose deaths were never uh, investigated. But part part of the problem of, of of this whole scenario is is indeed that that the deaths of hundreds of people in the north of Ireland since 1969 weren't uh, investigated by the by the authorities. The police never came to our door. Um, which you know when you look at it now as 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 uh, is, is bizarre, mm. um, and not only our door. The, the police didn't go to any of the the thirteen doors, and uh, and the Craig and, and the Brandywell and the the, the Bogside. Well, they didn't want to time. know what happened, did they? I mean, they were very quick to they, cover they, it up with they, the witchery. Well, the well, the, the, the RUC were complicit in, mm. in, in the whole affair uh, at the time. Therefore, they would have ended up uh, investigating themselves in, in, in effect. Mm. But you know, when, when you think about it, it's, it's completely bizarre that. That, that men and teenagers can leave their homes uh, to go to a, a civil rights demonstration and bear in mind that they were demonstrating on behalf of their fellow citizens who had been imprisoned uh, by internment. So they were actually doing good. Um, they weren't, you know, they, they weren't out to um, to oppose the state in armed struggle or, or, or nothing like that. Uh, and and, and they were mowing down on the, the streets of Derry and mm-hmm. Their deaths were never properly uh, investigated until the Savile inquiry was in. Well, that's a, in fairness, there has been an inquiry, a very lengthy inquiry, yeah, a twelve-year yeah, inquiry, yeah. and Justice Savile found that your father and uh, the other thirteen murdered on Bloody Sunday were unlawfully killed. David Cameron apologised yeah. to you on behalf yeah. of uh, the British government, <clears throat> uh, but uh, how is it uh, that they were unlawfully killed by British troops and? There is no prospect of a murder investigation. Yeah, well, it's, it's what the PP, the, the Public Prosecution Service, uh, said yesterday, mm. and you know we're we're still dealing with the the, the detail uh, of it. But they their view was, and, and we know that there's a higher standard of uh, evidence re- required for a, a criminal um, investigation or, or a criminal prosecution than, than there is. Within a a, um, a tribunal of, of inquiry, uh, tribunals, of, tribunals of inquiry deal with the probabilities and, and possibilities and, and, and uh, certainties. Mm. Um, but the, the 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 threshold of evidence, as, as it were, is, is lower than, than a criminal case. So the uh, the the PPS has decided to settle on the actions of of one soldier. Actually, only some. Of the actions of of one soldier uh, on the day, hmm. and the, the the rest of us have well, been excluded. You know, what does soldier F mean to you? Well, soldier F executed my father. I mean, he didn't he didn't just kill him. Hmm. He, he executed him in, no, in public. N- no doubt he did. Uh, according yeah, to yeah, Lord Savile. Yeah, and he, he was my my father was was shot while he was on the ground, um, shot from a range of uh, around thirty yards. Um, by a trained uh, British Army sniper whose cipher is uh, Soldier F. So I, I've, I've mm. grown up in the, in, in the shadow of, of, of this man and we, we all have 
the, the whole of the, the city of Derry has grown up in, in the shadow of what these men were, were allowed to do um, and what was subsequently covered up uh, for them on, on yeah. behalf of the, the, the army and the, uh, and the, the judiciary. Um, so it's, the, the, the impact of it has been catastrophic when, when, when you think of what happened in, in 1972 been, mm. been the, the, the most violent of, of all the years of the conflict. But I mean, it, I, I, I went to prison in, in, in 1981 as an IRA prisoner. And so I, I served eight years for a, a, a lot lesser uh, offence than, than than murder. But the the the, the person who murdered my father um, is now only being charged almost fifty years uh, on. You set a, a furniture shop on fire. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's right. I, I was a member of the IRA. Mm. You were you were recruited at seventeen, but I, I think you say uh, that the recruitment began in January of nineteen seventy-two, the day your father was shot in the back by Soldier F. Yeah, not, not just for me, but for uh, a lot of people of my generation. Well, of course, it, it, I think it's generally recognised as uh, the single biggest moment in history for recruiting people to the provisional IRA. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It was. It was I mean, I, I was only a youngster. At, at nine, but my um, my course of, of my life course was by and large predetermined by um, by what happened on, on, on that day. There's, there's, there's a straight there's a straight line uh, to be drawn from the actions of the British Army on that day to me becoming involved in the in the IRA. So mm. the chances are, I mean, I, I will I will have served more uh, time in prison. I, I did just over four years between 1981 and 1985 than uh, than any of the soldiers uh, who were involved in, in the massacre of Bloody Sunday. And how did you feel when you heard <clears throat> Soldier F being described as having acted with dignity, having acted appropriately under orders? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think sick to the stomach would have, would have been one description that, that many people used I found it absolutely unbelievable that the that the British Secretary of State uh, described the actions of, of the British soldiers in such a way. Actually, even yesterday mm. when she was supposedly uh, sympathising with us, she introduced her statement by by praising the, the, the actions of the British Army as a peacekeeping force in the north of Ireland. And Karen Bradley's... Comments are now being overshadowed by comments made yesterday by Gavin Williamson, who's uh, the Defence Secretary. He spoke uh, yeah. about uh, the British state paying for the legal expenses and so on. He spoke about how the British state was indebted to soldiers, uh, that uh, they need to protect the welfare of uh, those soldiers, uh, and that there should be a new package of safeguards to ensure that they are not unfairly treated. Well, as far as I'm concerned, that there's there's no one being unfairly treated, um, particularly uh, members of the British Army and the RUC, who carried out their own atrocities. When when I, when I was in prison in the 1980s, the the, the hitchblocks were full of of men who had been uh, convicted of all sorts of, of offences, going back to the early 70s right through to the 1990s. So that was that was a one way that that was a one way traffic. There has never been an, an investigative process in, into the actions of the of, of the British Army. The state has always covered over their actions. They've always covered over the actions of 
of those who could was, was loyalists and until organisations like the Pat Finnegan Centre and, and Justice for, for the Forgotten in Dublin and Monaghan uh, actually worked for years diligently to, to uncover the facts. That, that has never been done by the, uh, by the British government. Mm. Um, so that, that, that's why we're in the position that, that we're in. We, we, you know, it's, it's, it's regrettable to say that from a justice point of view, we've moved very little and very slowly, um, sometimes in the wrong direction since the, the, the outbreak of peace in, in 1994. Um, and I think, the, the, I think the, the, the British need to take uh, full responsibility for that because they, they've undermined practically every move towards creating a, a more just and lasting peace on, on, on this island um, since the opportunity of, of, of peace has, has been brought about. I mean, talk about squandering opportunities. Um, they, they haven't learned a single thing from the, the, the actions, the atrocious actions of, of their soldiers here since 1969. Not a single thing. And if Soldier F is prosecuted because they say it will take some time, if not an inordinate amount of time for a court case to be held and whatever the outcome of that might be, and even if uh, the other 16 living soldiers were to face prosecution, there's still an awful lot more questions to be asked. Uh, there's uh, questions about those who are in command on a, a military level and on a political yeah. level as well. Absolutely. And the, 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 the commanders, those who actually planned the, uh, the event, the, it turned out to be the atrocity of Bloody Sunday, mm. uh, were, were, ha- haven't been investigated at all. Uh, and the evidence against them, I have to say, even from the Savile uh, inquiry, is, is, is damning. Colonel Derek w- Wilford saying this week uh, that yeah. it was justifiable. Yeah, it was justifiable, and, and the bloody Sunday also destroyed his life. I mean, mm. God luck him. I mean, if I would, um, if he would just look at what the actions of, of his soldiers, what was his own actions did on that day to uh, many families and, and, and Derry, and that, as you can see from the the events yesterday, the, the hurt of what happened still lasts to this to, to, to the present day, and people haven't, even though the Bloody Sunday families have received um, quite intense uh, exposure over over the years. Uh, we still haven't reached the point where we can say that that full justice has 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 been done. Uh, the the law basically hasn't recognised that uh, that. The, that murder has has happened in, in, in a sense, and and they haven't. They claim they don't have the, the the evidence to support a successful prosecution. But we 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 will examine that over over the course of the, of, the, of the next few days and weeks. The the, the families group is a very very resilient, very resolute uh, group, and we're not going to take this lightly. And we'll be back uh, to, to say more and, and do more about this in due course. Okay, come back and talk to us uh, when you are ready yeah. to do so, Tony. And uh, thank you for talking to us today and for joining us. No on the problem. Program. You're very welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Tony Doherty is a chair of uh, the Bloody Sunday Trust. His father, Paddy, was one of uh, the fourteen shot dead on Bloody Sunday. 
Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, MPs uh, voted in uh, the House of Commons yesterday by an impressive majority of uh, 210 in favour of an extension of Article 50, pushing out the Brexit uh, date. Uh, but despite uh, the big majority, it was a free vote. And of course, Brexit never being simple, it saw some surprises, or perhaps somebody was surprised at how eight cabinet ministers voted against the motion, including uh, the Brexit secretary. Let's uh, talk about where this is going, if it's going anywhere at all at this stage, with Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us uh, this morning. The Prime Minister has said uh, there'll be a third vote on her deal before Wednesday of next week, if it's passed. And that's a big if. Uh, she looked for an extension until the 30s of June. If it's rejected, uh, she'll be seeking a, a longer extension, it would seem, at this stage. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yes, um, we've had so many twists and turns that in many respects were back where we started. Um, and the confusion and uncertainty reigns and the difficulties that that places Ireland in um, obviously are quite clear. What we have as a result of last night's vote, which I think was probably expected, is a clear view that the British at least are going to request an extension of time. Obviously, that will form part of a negotiation in itself in terms of the conditions in which the EU is willing to grant that extension. Remember that in order for an extension to be granted, it has to be agreed unanimously by the European Council. That means that every single government has to accede to it. It'll only take one not to now. Having said that, my expectation is that an extension would be agreed, but having been in Strasbourg this week and speaking to a lot of EU leaders, the clear view is that, yes, an extension will be granted, but from their point of view, they want to know what exactly an extension is being sought for. And that wasn't clear. Yes, in the event that Theresa May's deal is adopted next week, then there's a clear framework in which to move forward. But as you say, it's difficult to know what can change in the um, over the course of the next number of days that would turn that majority because the backstop is there to stay. We have saw the latest machinations. Theresa May was in Strasbourg late on Monday night to mm. finalise. Um, everybody, with the exception of Fianna Fáil, and this is right across the EU and Britain and Ireland, accepted that within that the backstop was protected um, and that appears to be the very clear position of the European Union and there doesn't seem to be any mechanism or any any prospect that they would now at this late stage renege on that position. You've lost me there. What, what, what did Fianna Fáil say about it? Well, Fianna Fáil essentially um, in, implicated that the backstop had been undermined as a result of the agreement that was made in Strasbourg on Monday night. I think they appeared quite foolish as a result of it because nobody in Europe and certainly nobody in the House of Commons believed that that was the case. So Mm. I think it was just on their part in their defence. I think they were just trying to say something different for the sake of it as opposed to having any reasonable um, or rational um, assessment of what was actually agreed on Monday night. Right. Um, as I say, you've lost me. Uh, I, I imagine that was an initial response before they had sight of the document. That's not the Fianna Fáil position now that the backstop has been undermined, is it? 
And well, that was the stated position of their spokesperson, Lisa Chambers, on Tuesday morning after everybody had read the document. And I was quite surprised with it at the time because I missed that. Okay, (laughs) okay, Uh, but uh, I mean, it it, uh, seemed very clear that it had not been undermined. uh, That uh, the backstop uh, would be uh, applied uh, in uh, the. Uh, spirit uh, that it was drawn up in, uh, and, and that, indeed, that seemed to be the the, the undoubted position. Uh, it was uh, the view of uh, the Attorney General Geoffrey Cox that there was uh, still this risk that the United Kingdom could remain trapped in Europe as a result. It seems now that Mrs May is hoping to get him to change his legal advice to convince the DUP otherwise. Well, and then here's the real crux, and this is what caused the most consternation and exacerbation at a European level, because that was the definitive position of almost everybody on Tuesday in relation to the deal, and as you say, Geoffrey Cox gave his legal opinion, and the House of Commons rejected it apparently on the basis that they couldn't tolerate any situation where the north of Ireland would be treated differently to Britain as they saw it. Yet on Wednesday morning, the British government announced a proposed new tariff regime, which would be absolutely disastrous um, from an Irish point of view, but at the same time actually incorporated a different regime Hmm. for the island of Ireland vis-a-vis Britain. Um, And you can just imagine the questions that we as Irish MEPs were being asked on Wednesday morning when... Hmm. The British government quite clearly, you know, it has to be said this tariff regime was an element of fantasy politics and there were there was game playing on the part of the British, which isn't surprising. Well, it was, I, the very know, fact that I, think, I think the latter was true. It was game playing. It was, wasn't fantasy politics. It was muddying the waters and it was trying to confuse people. It was intentionally trying to uh, make people question what was going on and they added to that with Michael Gove then coming out the same day and suggesting that there would be a return to uh, direct rule in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I, again, this is, um, as you quite correctly say, this is a feeble attempt at trying to strengthen their position in the negotiations because the crux of it from an Irish point of view has been this. There has been an acceptance by everybody, including Theresa May, that we cannot tolerate any hardening of the Irish border. Now, there are differences in in emphasis in terms of what a hard border actually means. But by and large, the principle is there. But the British have said, at the same point, we want to leave the customs union and we want to take the north out of it. And no, we won't tolerate any special arrangements Mm. for for the north. But yet, when it came to the first point where they were actually producing a formula of proposals in terms of um, how they would approach a no-deal scenario, what's included in the heart of it? This this special arrangement mm. in relation to the North. So it would be laughable were it not so serious. Yeah. And, and, and Michael Gove's threats, mm-hmm. um, so to speak, um, quite clearly the British government have just given up all pretense of being um, neutral or being um, objective in terms mm. of the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. And I would imagine mm-hmm. that that is extremely worrying for everybody who's looking on. Well, it would it would be if they weren't playing games. Uh, and no disrespect to you, but uh, to a large degree, this conversation seems futile because what's happening is ridiculous. Uh, you're looking at somebody digging a hole and they keep going deeper. Uh, I mean, when eight ministers vote uh, against what the government is intending, you know you're in a, a pretty serious space. Uh, and we've seen one bizarre incident after another happen here. Uh, and it, it's 
almost ridiculous to try and rationalise the madness that's going on in London at this stage. So how will they find a way out of this hole? Because they are a laughing stock at this stage, aren't they? It is incredibly laughable. Not only did ministers vote against it, but in the case of the Brexit minister, they actually stood up in the House of Commons, argued for it before voting against it. Um, And I I suppose in many ways that's just reflective of the charade. The difficulty has been that Theresa May has been an incredibly poor leader. She has decided from the very outset that she was going to sucker to the most extreme elements within her own party. Following the general election, she added to that by suckering to the most extreme elements within the DUP. Throughout all of this, there has not been a clear vision articulated from the British government as to exactly what they want to achieve in the Brexit negotiations, particularly in relation to Ireland. And while the language in some cases has been flowery and in some cases um, they have said the right thing, they have yet to actually present a formal proposal in relation to how they would deal with mm. the complexities and the contradictions that go to the heart of their position. So the only mechanism that has actually been formulated at an official talks level has been the backstop and the withdrawal agreement that has been agreed to, I think, on three occasions now by Theresa May, but on all occasions she has gone back to her um, to her parliament and they have rejected it, again without proposing anything mm. different. Next week is going to tell a story quite clearly. Theresa May's strategy is to force the Brexiteers um, to face a choice of either agreeing to her deal or facing what could be a prolonged extension of the um, of the Article 50 process. From an Irish point of view, obviously, an, uh, an extension of the Article 50 process is better than a no-deal scenario. 20, 21, months on, 21 months of uncertainty. But yes, so the, the question is whether or not we want a period, a longer period of uncertainty or a very immediate period of certain catastrophe. So that's the challenge that's facing us. Of course, we'd all prefer to be in a situation where it would be different. Now, the only thing that I would say, and this is just speculation and observing British politics, which is a very dangerous thing to do because it is in such a, um, a, um, a disarray at the, at the moment. But my sense is, that I cannot imagine a scenario whereby there would be European elections in Britain without accompanying Westminster elections. I don't know how Theresa May could trigger a, a set of European elections considering mm. all that she has said and at the same time remain in government. I think at that point, and if there is a prolonged period of time, there will either be a substantive move against her as leader of the Tory party um, or there will be um, members of her party who will back or abstain in a no-confidence motion that would trigger a general election. I just, uh, and, and maybe things will become clear there. But the truth of the matter is, from an Irish point of view, we've seen this time and time again, we don't know whether we can trust the Labour Party. There seems to be more sensible people within their ranks than there are within the Tories. But at the end of the day, English political parties are going to act mm. in what they see as being the English national interest. And what's important from an Irish point of view is that we collectively work together in the Irish national interest. Okay, ju- 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 just... remain firm and resolute in relation to the backstop and it means that we need to be putting forward all the necessary provisions and preparations Mm. for that possible outcome of a no-deal Brexit. Uh, Just very briefly, to conclude, would you feel confident uh, enough uh, to predict what might happen over the course of the next week? I wouldn't. um, Who knows, but I cannot see a scenario that Theresa May's um, deal is is accepted by the House of Commons considering the huge, uh, the huge majority that she has to overturn within those numbers. So I, I, my guess is that the British government is going to be coming looking for 
a short period of an extension and I feel that the European Union are going to say if we're going to have an extension, we'll have a real extension um, in the absence of a deal actually being agreed um, that will be much longer than just three or four months. Um, And as I said at the start, what effectively that will mean is that we're back to square one again because the whole process of negotiations will probably start up again. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin MEP. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to America where the St. Patrick's Day celebrations are well underway with uh, the visit, uh, the annual visit of uh, the Taoiseach uh, to Washington. It was a busy day yesterday for Leo Varadkar ending on Capitol Hill after meeting President uh, Donald Trump and uh, the Vice President that morning. Uh, let's uh, talk about uh, this with Larry Donnelly who's a law lecturer with NUI Galway and a political columnist with uh, the journal.ie. Good morning to you, Larry, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme. And whilst we're hanging on every word, and if Leo Vratker said anything to Mike Pence about being gay and so on, it, it is a hugely uh, important thing for Irish people to be watching and to see how America is receiving us. But how is this visit received in America? Is there much interest in what Leo Vratker has to say or what he's doing? Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that it dominates the national headlines, but certainly the visit of the Taoiseach to uh, Washington, D.C. would get some press. Uh, certainly in, in newspapers across the country, there would be uh, somebody typically who ca- would cover the Irish beat, so to speak, uh, and those journalists would be covering uh, this visit. Uh, I think one of the things that's not paid enough attention to, perhaps, is the stuff that we don't see on TV. The reality is um, that the oh, the access that March 17th generates for uh, Ireland, politicians, business people, all sorts of different interests, uh, the doors that are open to me, the, I suppose, the people that they get to meet with uh, because of March 17th uh, is just extraordinary. So it's an opportunity uh, that should not be eyed dismissively. So in, in some, it gets some coverage in the U.S., but it would be over-egging over it to say that it's uh, national news or front-page headlines. Okay, but I imagine that photograph of uh, the Taoiseach presenting the president with uh, the bowl of shamrock is one that's covered every year. Oh, absolutely it is. And I, I think that one thing that, that should be added to that equation is uh, because Leo Varadka is who he is, that is, uh, someone with in, uh, of Indian heritage and somebody who is a gay man, uh, that is another wrinkle which I think has generated considerably more uh, interest and more media attention in the United States. All right. And I, I imagine that, that the journalists who, who are on the Irish beat, as I think you put it a, a moment ago, uh, would have had uh, their attention distracted to some degree by events in Derry. And I imagine there was a lot of interest in America amongst Irish Americans, uh, apart from anything else, in what the Bloody Sunday families had to say yesterday. I, I didn't hear the American president say anything, let alone the Taoiseach. No, no, I, I, I didn't. Uh, that, that's fair enough. And I, but I do. I have heard lots of Irish Americans uh, commenting uh, both on social media and elsewhere. I think that the sense is one of disappointment. I think that they had hoped for uh, more than they received yesterday. Uh, and it's it's a very difficult situation, Michael. To be perfectly mm. frank, uh, you can understand absolutely the horrific pain. Uh, that those families have gone through. I know somebody was just on your program. Mm-hmm. The horrific pain that those families have gone through, that, I suppose, you know, and again, I hate to sound like too much of a lawyer here, mm-hmm. that also has to be balanced against uh, the realities and the safeguards in the criminal justice system. So uh, I think a lot of people will be disappointed. Uh, it's not the outcome that they wanted. Uh, mm-hmm. Will they ever fully get justice for what happened that day? Uh, I don't think so. But at least 
uh, as some of them have said bravely, I think, and stoically, uh, that justice for one is justice for all. So let's hope they get it. Yeah, and great solidarity, I think, from the Irish government by way of a written statement and what the Tánaiste had to say. But I, I think uh, it's probably fair to reflect on how we didn't hear the Taoiseach articulate the view of the Irish government uh, from Washington. He was speaking on behalf of a, a lot of Irish people, though, yesterday, and he was talking about uh, the many people who are resident but uh, illegal in America and getting access to E3 visas. These are, are visas that are available to Australians, apparently. That's right. This is something that came very, very close to happening last year. Uh, effectively, they needed, because of the bizarre rules of the United States Senate, they needed 100% approval. They needed all the senators to approve this. One senator, one senator did not approve. Donald, both Donald Trump and Mike Pence have been working on him to get him on side. What we're talking about here is the E3 visa, uh, which allows people with certain skills uh, from Australia, 10,000 of them uh, annually, to go to the United States. And effectively, it's a renewable visa that allows them to stay pretty much for their entire life if they so choose. Australians don't take up all 10,000 of that allocation. The idea was, and this was some really deft uh, negotiating, both by Irish Americans and the Irish government, um, to, that the that Irish people might take up every year that quota, that that number of that quota that aren't used and that a lot, thousands effectively uh, of Irish people would have the chance to live and work in the United States. Uh, that fell short by just one senator who objected to it. Now, a lot of work has been done on that, and I understand they are going to go back to this. So, again, I hate to get hopes up on this front, but it is encouraging that uh, people continue to advocate uh, and fight for the right for Irish people to live and work in the United States. After all, the bond that we celebrate on St. Patrick's Day is a direct result of the transatlantic flow of people. In recent years, that flow of people has slowed down considerably, and as such, uh, the ties that so many of us celebrate uh, are starting to fray. We need to put all, all an awful lot of effort uh, into ensuring that more people can go that way. And indeed, one aspect of this is that more Irish Americans and Americans generally who have an affinity for Ireland can come over here and either live or work, live and work or retire. Flawed and human, but judged on uh, the Taoiseach's political actions and mistakes, he said uh, that he wasn't uh, speaking in front of the vice president uh, because of his sexual orientation, his skin tone or his gender, let alone his religious beliefs. Do you think that there was more interest in how the... Uh, Taoiseach as a, a gay man uh, met with Mike Pence yesterday than his meeting with Donald Trump uh, and uh, did you hear any talk of Mike Pence trying to cure the Taoiseach? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I didn't hear I didn't hear any of that. Uh, I think that uh, Mike Pence, uh, who's a deeply conservative uh, Christian, has to be said an Irish-American whose grandfather came from Sligo, uh, certainly has uh, voiced some views that in the fact I think could fairly be characterized as homophobic. Uh, that having been said, I think he was quite gracious, and the Taoiseach recognized this uh, to welcome uh, both the Taoiseach and his partner uh, into the vice president's residence. And again, uh, I think Leo Varadkar spoke very well uh, yesterday. I think he, you know, he spoke. Uh, he wasn't uh, confrontational, but yet he affirmed uh, who he is, and he affirmed that Irish society has moved on. And I think uh, indirectly and perhaps subtly. Uh, speaking to a more conservative on these issues, Irish America, saying that Ireland has moved on. It's time for a lot of Irish Americans to look into their hearts and to look into their souls and look at what's happened uh, at the country they're so proud to hail from. 
and say maybe it's time we all moved on. All right. A, a lot of uh, the papers uh, believe or are reporting uh, that Leo Varadkar was slapped down by Donald Trump yesterday, but he, he was slapped on his European wrist o- over Brexit. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that he was slapped down, I suppose, on, on two fronts. Uh, first of all, I, I don't think it's any mystery that the president is at least sympathetic uh, to the cause of Brexit, to the idea of mm. uh, the UK, uh, I suppose, retaking control, as he would as he would say it. Uh, and remember, he's a close friend of Nigel Farage, and their political uh, inclinations would be, broadly speaking, similar. They would be of that populist, uh, nationalist variety. So certainly the president wouldn't be on the same page uh, as Leo Varadkar or of Ireland or of the European Union on Brexit. The second way, and perhaps in a sense uh, more meaningful way, that the president uh, slapped down the Taoiseach was with respect to a U.S.-EU trade deal. Uh, And this goes back to the president's protectionist instincts. Uh, The president would very firmly be of the view that, particularly when it comes to uh, the uh, import uh, from the U.S. to the EU uh, of of steel and aluminum, uh, that the EU isn't playing fairly with the United States. Uh, And so when the Taoiseach says, uh, let's have a trade deal between the EU and the U.S., uh, it rankles the president. He says, wait a second, uh, you guys aren't playing fair with us. Uh, how do you expect us to do a deal with you? Uh, that's something that is quite significant. I think will be very significant uh, in the event that the U.K. Uh, does eventually leave uh, Brexit, regardless of what the, sorry, does eventually leave the U.K., uh, whatever, leave the EU, whatever the terms of that exit are. Uh, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Uh, and again, I suspect if there is a different president, uh, in 2020, he or she might be more sympathetic. Uh, but this is trade between the EU and the US is a big issue. All right. Uh, the president had hoped to visit Ireland before. It didn't happen. But should we be preparing for a presidential visit now? Because Mr. Trump said he hopes to do so this year. Uh, to, to be to be frank, Michael, I, I don't know what we can prepare for. I mean, uh, he seemed, he said it. It probably took as many people in the room who are close to him by surprise as anything else. Uh, he said it. We don't know whether he's going to do it. Uh, he may. He may not. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, I do think, you know, look, it's possible. Uh, and again, there will be debates, of course. Should he be allowed here? Should he be recognized? Uh, what should happen? What should the protests be like? Uh, and to that, my answer is quite frank. He is the president of the United States. Uh, he should be given a diplomatic welcome. That doesn't mean we have to agree with everything he says. But to say he shouldn't come here, uh, I think, is wrong. I think it's counterproductive to Ireland's interests. We need to adopt uh, a real politique answer to these questions. And I think that's magnified immeasurably by the fact uh, of Brexit and what all might come of that. OK, Larry, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. We have to leave it there. We're over time. But thank you, as I say. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway and a political columnist with thejournal.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. John phoned in during your earlier interview with Tony Doherty in relation to Bloody Sunday and that decision yesterday and he says, I remember that era well, Michael, so vividly and I remember that paratroopers were sent in there like they were in a lot of places around the world, I feel, to teach people a lesson. Grania from Drogheda says, hard to understand how how there can be just one prosecution. Feel so sorry for the families who have been so dignified despite their suffering over the years. 
Jim from Dundalk says the families of those civilians shot dead are an inspiration to their loved ones who lost their lives that day. They have stood tall. They've been dogged in their determination to get justice. And it really is to their credit that there is going to be one prosecution. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. John phoned in from Lucan and he wasn't a happy camper this morning, also on the same Mm. topic. He just says he's so annoyed over yesterday's yesterday's decision and he feels that one man has been made a scapegoat. What about the British government? What about the commander-in-chief, the commander on the day? Mm. Why are they all not being pulled in? They all need to be called to task. I don't think one man should be made a scapegoat. It seems to suggest, oh, we'll give them a bit of justice and then it will go away. He feels Simon Coveney needs to grow a pair and say what needs to be said. He needs to stand up and say, this is just not good enough. Why are we still genuflecting to the British? If I hear the word Brexit again, and he adds, I've been told now I might have to get a green card to go into the north of our country. Well, I won't be getting any green card. All right. Well, some of us already have them, John, but uh, thanks for your call. And I think those calls reflect uh, the mood of uh, a lot of people following what was one of uh, the worst atrocities in living memory. There was a dreadful atrocity this morning, as you've been hearing in New Zealand, where it's now been confirmed that at least 49 people have been been killed in planned attacks. Uh, We'll hear a a little bit of how it has been reported in New Zealand and uh, One News. An eerie calm has descended here at Hagley Park tonight. I'm just 100 metres from the mosque where this massacre took place. But when we first arrived here, it was mayhem. Police were running with guns through Hagley Park, something that I never thought I would see. They were shouting at us. They were shouting at the public, saying, get out, don't come into the park. It it was just extraordinary to see that in our city, the Garden City. And then as we waited... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. People started to come from the mosque. They ran out in bare feet. They ran out in socks because 500 of them were there for Friday prayers in their place of sanctuary. 
And as I spoke to them, their eyes welled up as they described bloody scenes, bodies on the floor and fears for the families and friends that they had left inside. Loading a shotgun, the attacker walks from his vehicle in broad daylight towards the mosque. We won't show you any more from this point. Witnesses describe several gunshots and the horror that unfolded. I heard the back sound the gun, and the second one I heard, I ran. We heard shooting, so we just jumped into a bush and went down a bit further because we were shaken up, and I've never heard anything like that happen before. And it's a bit scary knowing what's happened, and I've seen someone who had been shot over there. Police say there are multiple fatalities. Some who were praying at the mosque managed to flee. So there's a whole lot of blood on the floor. The floor. It's a lot of blood on the floor. You can see when you go in. The gunman walked out of the mosque, driving through Christchurch, stopping occasionally to shoot out the window. They're firing from the car, and his father got two bullets, one here and one somewhere else he's in a hospital. Another attack at a Linwood Avenue mosque also left people dead. We have mobilised every police resource in the Canterbury region to respond to this. And we were also in the process of mobilising every national police resource to keep people safe. This afternoon, after apparently ramming the Silver Subaru, police are seen making an arrest. We have four people in custody. We are not aware of other people, but we cannot assume there are not others at large. Stay indoors if you're in that location. And I want to ask anyone that was thinking of going to a mosque anywhere in New Zealand today not to go, to close your doors until you hear from us again. People in shock after an attack, the likes of which has never been seen before on these shores. People coming for, for prey. And they somebody shot women's, three women's was in the floor. The day a house of worship became a place of terror. 49 dead and another 20 people in hospital. Clear emotion in uh, the New Zealand One News reporter's voice there. Not surprisingly so when there's an atrocity of uh, that sort in your own town uh, and uh, an atrocity of a modern age, it has to be said as well, Marie, uh, because uh, they did it on Facebook Live. It really is incredible stuff. It's just horrendous. Mm, just hard to digest, Michael. Yeah. Um, and just sticking with, if I can, to another atrocity, that bloody Sunday mm. shooting, shootings, um, a listener phoned in just to say, it's amazing, Michael, to think that, thank God, there's a generation that don't know about the troubles in the North. Yeah. And when you watch mm. and listen back to that footage over the last 24 hours in relation to Bloody Sunday, it really does bring back what times were like and hopefully Brexit will not change anything. Mm. There are some people young people that is who will think that you're exaggerating history you know what actually happened they'll think ah couldn't have been that bad that's right that's right because they have absolutely no awareness thank god that they don't and it's great that they think that you are exaggerating it because they didn't have to live through it just sticking with Brexit if I can Theresa says that um, Theresa May is taking Europe for a fuel 
that the only reason that the backstop has to, that the only reason why they um, are having this kind of row or whatever dispute mm. in relation to the backstop is because of the DUP and she feels that we just can't trust the UK and hopes that Europe stands by us no matter what and doesn't buckle. Okay. A listener from RD, I know you have been covering Brexit, Michael, but life has to go on. Could you tell us if the RD bypass has been shelved due to the overrun of the children's hospital? This project was to start at the start of the year and is badly needed. Nobody seems to know. Okay, we'll have to uh, make some inquiries then. It will be ironic, says Tom, if the eleventh, if at the eleventh hour Theresa May does bring her deal to the House of Commons for the third time, and is and it is passed with the backstop included and all. Mm, okay, <laughs> um, yeah. I haven't heard any talk of uh, the RD bypass being uh, postponed because of the over in the National no, Children's Hospital. Uh, there was uh, mention uh, because people hear these things on the radio yes. and they pick them up uh, uh, as fact. Uh, there, there was mention of a, a massive cut to the transport budget, uh, which would see the A5 being postponed but I don't think there's any consequence uh, for the RD bypass but obviously uh, we'll uh, check with uh, the Department of uh, Transport and ask uh, for a response on that for you. Mairead, how could the UK have EU elections if they are going to believe in the EU? Who'd want to contest that or would people even want to vote? Another listener says, we're, it's a laughing stock in Westminster. I thought they were bad in Ireland, but when you look at what's going on across the water, we should be thankful mm. for what we have. Yep. I'm Donald Trump. Finally, Declan phoned in and says, Michael, as much as we may not like much of what he does or say, your guest is absolutely right. That's Larry Donnelly. We would have to extend a big Cade Mila Folger to President Trump if he does come to Ireland because he is the president and it is the office and his position that we are showing respect to. All right. Thanks uh, for making that point and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we heard uh, Tony Doherty, uh, the chair of uh, the Bloody Sunday Trust, uh, earlier in the programme speak uh, about how uh, the families uh, will not... Uh, just accept the decision as announced yesterday that they will consider the decision that was announced yesterday and that undoubtedly in time they will have more to say and they will come back when they have more to say and they will let us know where they hope the investigations into the killing of 14 people on Bloody Sunday will go from here. It's a story uh, that has haunted the lives of most of us since 1972 and has been with us throughout most of our lives. Obviously, we look on this uh, from the cosy comfort of living somewhere very far away from Derry. But for those involved, there has been cruel twists and turns. There was a very cruel twist and turn in 1992, 20 years after the atrocity, the massacre of so many people in Derry when the BBC Inside Story went back to speak with some of the paratroopers and indeed the commanding officer, Colonel Derek Wilford. We'll hear a little bit of what he said in 1992, some 25 years ago, to the BBC's Peter Taylor. Do you accept that many of those who were killed, if not all of them, Mm. in the eyes of the people of the Bogside and Craigan, were in fact innocent civilians? Oh, no. Um, I I can't accept that, um, because that would be to accept that my soldiers were wrong, and I don't believe they were wrong. There might have been some uh, wrong 
uh, things wrong in the sense that uh, innocent people, people in fact who were not carrying a weapon, were shot and wounded or even killed. But that was not done as a deliberate malicious act. It was done as an act, if you like, of war. That was 25 years ago, 20 years after the Bloody Sunday killings in 1972. Colonel Derek Wilford speaking in 1992 to the BBC's Peter Taylor. The same Colonel Derek Wilford was asked about this again this week. Do you now accept what Lord Savile said? No, I don't. Because I was there. Well, we thought, in fact, that we, we were under attack uh, and we will actually remain convinced of that, actually, until the end of our days. Should your soldiers be prosecuted? No, they should not. But I don't believe, in fact, that they were capable of, of that sort of indiscriminate shooting and killing. Will you say sorry to, to the families who lost their loved ones that day? I've said that at the time, and I've said it subsequently. Uh, And I see no no point in repeating it, because whatever, in fact, I say will be discounted. Discounted, or otherwise, you would have thought there might have been some point in saying, well, I am sorry, whether you believe me or not, but... Uh, That wasn't the case, as we heard in that interview this week, given to the BBC by Colonel Derek Wilford. Now, uh, the announcement of uh, the Director of Public Prosecutions yesterday was met with some surprise uh, that just one of uh, the powers will face prosecution for two of uh, the dead and will also be prosecuted for attempted murders. Uh, There's 16 other soldiers who are still living that were on duty in Derry in January of 1972 and, of course, many others uh, who many would say have questions to answer but the families were certainly dignified in their response I was going to say good morning everyone but it is we have had a terrible disappointment in the outcome from a PPS we got one soldier, Soldier F and he was responsible for the murder of five individuals that day but he's now been put in the frame for two which is William McKinney and Jim Ray, and their injury of four hours. So their victory is our victory. Bloody Sunday was not just a wanton act carried out by a trained army against defenseless civil rights activists. It also created a deep legacy of hurt and injustice and deepened and prolonged a bloody conflict unimaginable even in those dark winter days of 1972. Today's decision, although 47 years overdue, is the right one. If we are to uphold the rule of law and hold perpetrators accountable for their crimes. However, we also say that the scope of the new police investigation was not wide enough. We repeat our call for this injustice to be addressed. And while we as a group of families and individuals may have differing views on whether or not the soldiers who carried out the shootings should face jail or how long they should spend in jail, we are all agreed that they should face the due process of the law. We stand in full solidarity with those of us whose loved one's death or injury has not been included 
and the announcement of prosecutions. We also stand to complete the solidarity with the hundreds of families who have had to endure decades without an inquest, without a criminal investigation, and who have been left to struggle for their basic human right to justice. We hope our campaign to con continues to be an inspiration to them. And there you hear a little bit of that press conference from the Guildhall in Derry yesterday. The people you were listening to were John Kelly, Geraldine Doherty and Mickey McKinney, all of whom will undoubtedly be trying to make sense of what uh, was decided and how it was uh, announced yesterday. Uh, and indeed, uh, I'm sure that uh, the thoughts of people uh, local to them uh, across the island and indeed uh, across uh, the world are with them. Uh, let's go back uh, to Colonel Derek Wilford. Uh, he spoke uh, about his role as uh, the commanding officer in the Blundy Sunday attack 20 years ago to the BBC in side program and indeed again this week uh, and in terms of what bloody sunday meant for him and what effect it had on him he had similar things to say this is what he said 20 years ago oh <clears throat> what has it done to me it's a as an event of course which is in my subconscious all the time and occasionally it comes to the surface um and I suppose, in fact, it's made me, if anything, rather anti-war, but it's made me also, I think, anti-politicians and anti-a hierarchy which allows the situation to go on. I would like to have thought that out of that tragedy, which it was a tragedy, however way you look at it, that something more positive could have happened. Instead, it just became negative. It was something that went into the history books, went into a widgery tribunal. Groups of people, in fact, formed their opinions and hold them to this day that they were right and the others were wrong. Nothing positive occurred. Um, I am sure I will be censored for saying so if, uh, you know, if, if, if it comes into the open, but I believe, in fact, that we really should find a much more positive solution than hyperbole to a situation which has gone on for 20 years, 30 years, it will go on for another 30 years because there is no, as far as I can see, um, desire on either side to actually end it. You know, I hear people say, well, troops out of Ireland, uh, it's like troops out of Aden. We did make a positive decision and I think we need to make a positive decision now about ending the war in Northern Ireland. Otherwise, it will go on for another 20 years, With and another 20 years. Withdrawing the troops? Not necessarily withdrawing the troops like that, arbitrarily, but to make a positive decision about ending the situation there. And if that involved withdrawing the troops, then yes, take the troops out. All right, and that was part of a BBC interview 25 years ago. Colonel Derek Wilford, who was the commanding officer in Derry 45 years ago in 1972. 
time now, as is usual, around this time of Friday for our review of uh, the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath the Oireachtas Report. We begin a roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Tuesday night. During a private member's motion questioning the cost of the National Children's Hospital, independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick said there is something wrong when local authority offices are better fitted out than some of our existing hospitals. At a meeting in my constituency office in Dock not long ago, which was in relation to the restriction in services offered at a local hospital, the Lloyd County Hospital, one of my constituents asked me, why is it that in Ireland we have the most beautiful civic offices and public buildings and yet some of the worst hospitals? Do we need to build a design statement, a trophy hospital, which has caused massive overspending? No, we don't. We need a hospital that delivers the best possible service with the greatest standard of care to sick children that the state can provide. We need a state-of-the-art postnatal trauma unit, a world-class paediatric oncology unit and a dedicated bones unit, to name but a few. What we need is a facility where the mother and child can be cared for under the same roof and where families can be accommodated with a little comfort and dignity. The Oireachtas has been discussing legislation that will prepare this country for a no-deal Brexit. Speaking in the Senate on Tuesday, Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Meath East, Helen McEntee, told the House that excluding the UK, the rest of the European Union is fully supportive of the Irish position in the current difficulties. There is no greater demonstration of the benefits of the EU membership to a country like Ireland than the unity and the solidarity shown by our EU partners in the face of the UK's withdrawal. And I want to repeat that. The withdrawal agreement was agreed between the EU Commission and the UK Government in November. It followed two years of detailed and complicated negotiations and was the result of real compromise on both sides. It fully secures the negotiating objectives as set out at the start. Most importantly, it fully protects the Good Friday Agreement. It ensures the avoidance of a hard border on the island of Ireland. It also provides, importantly, for a transition period which provides the certainty for many citizens and business while the future relationship is negotiated, a certainty that people are certainly craving now. The withdrawal agreement represents a finely balanced compromise between the concerns and the priorities of all 27 countries involved. Ratifying it remains the best and the only way to ensure that we have an orderly Brexit. The high cost of insurance on small business operators was raised in the Dáil on Tuesday. Ain Tu TD Padda Tobin told the House that if something isn't done quickly, more and more businesses will close. I know one business owner, Linda Murray, she's involved in the Alliance uh, for Insurance Reform. Uh, she owns a small business in, in County Meath, uh, which is a play centre. And her insurance costs have spiralled from €2,500 up to about €16,000. She represents about 60 such play uh, areas in the country. And already this year, three of those have gone bust. Um, and she has as stated that small businesses are simply being crucified by insurance costs. Many small businesses are not having their insurance actually renewed, even though they have made no claims whatsoever. And their equivalent companies in, in Britain who are having no differences to their insurance costs whatsoever. During the same debate, Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock said the evidence to hand suggests that a cartel is operating in the sector. I am being informed that many insurance companies are now using large call centres and that these centres are dealing with many of the largest players in the industry. 
the call centre staff can see the previous quote offer and are therefore quoting accordingly. And if this is not a cartel, I don't know what is. The last issue that I will bring to your attention, a responsible employer, he notified the insurance company because one of his staff cut the finger and went to uh, accident emergency. That person had never any intention of claiming, but he made sure he notified his company. The premium went up €2,000 in that year. No claim was ever lodged. No money was ever returned. I'll just simply say to you, we're crippling businesses and crippling local organisations, and we need to get to grips with it. The Sea Fisheries Amendment Bill was discussed in the Senate on Thursday and aims to address the issue of restrictions within exclusive fishery limits. Labour Senator Jed Nash told the House that it didn't make sense to restrict Northern Ireland-owned vessels from fishing off the east coast of Ireland. Now, how do we restrict Northern Ireland-owned, managed and operated vessels only from fishing in the Republic of Ireland inshore? It is impossible. There's no such thing. This is my advice of what constitutes a Northern Ireland-owned and operated vessel. They are UK vessels. So, therefore, it follows... Uh, that vessels that are owned and operated in Wales, Scotland and elsewhere, and indeed vessels, of course, that are owned by larger corporations operating out of Northern Ireland, have a right to fish with impunity uh, in the Irish inshore. And we have seen the damage that has been done to, for example, the mussel seed beds uh, in the southeastern coast of Ireland, and I know the damage that's been done in relation to brown crab off Clare Head, razor clam fisheries, North County Dublin uh, and elsewhere. So we need to be mindful of that. The Dáil was told on Wednesday that the Rebuilding Ireland programme is not working. Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Mead, the Melda Munster, told on Thonish to Simon Coveney that the figures for the wee county were testament to that. There are over 4,500 people on the housing waiting list in County Louth and your Rebuilding Ireland targets are to deliver just 1,074 homes between now and 2021. Now that's not even, firstly that leaves a shortfall of over 75% but that's not even taking into account those families who come onto the housing list between now and 2021 and despite your, your government's protestations, rebuilding Ireland is clearly not working because the families and the figures are there to prove that. So what my question is, will you accept now that only a policy of a rollout, rollout of a policy of providing Public houses on public lands with public finances will solve this crisis. First of all, to Deputy Munster, can I just say that this is a five-year strategy. It won't work in year one or year two on its own. You can only, you can only measure the delivery of social housing on the basis of increasing output over a five-year period, which is, exactly, which is exactly what's happening. But we are meeting the figures that your party signed up to in the context of that original uh, Rebuilding Ireland document and the the all-party committee. Um, uh, In fact, the figures from a Rebuilding Ireland point of view have been upgraded since then to to 50,000 from, I think it was about 47,000 extra social housing. New rules which determined that learner drivers must be accompanied by a qualified driver were described as ridiculous. Fine Gael Senator Ray Butler told the Shannon on Wednesday that some young people are being forced to stop working as a result. To expect to have a qualified driver beside a young person 24 hours of the day going to work and from work is absolutely ridiculous. I've been speaking to employers where young people can't get to work and basically have given up their jobs. In England they have a system where they have learner driver centres. 
and you do a course for around 14 to 15 hours where you get a permit that entitles you to go on the road as a learner driver. And I think we should look at that system here in Ireland. And if we had one of these centres in every county in Ireland to facilitate young people, it would be a huge help and create employment in the area. The delay in constructing St Mary's Special School in Navan was raised in the Dáil on Wednesday. Fianna Fáil TD from the West, Shane Castle, said the delay is unacceptable and sought a response from Minister of State Jim Daly. Minister, I can tell you that there's none going to be more deserving than St Mary's Special School in Navan. It is superbly led by Principal Maria Corridor and Chairman of the Board of Management Bob O'Callaghan, as well as a team of dedicated staff who accommodate individual learning styles so that all students may experience success. The school has been in existence for over 43 years and caters for nearly 90 students from all across Meath, Cavan, Loud and Dublin. And, Minister, they cater from every geographical point in the county. So I met parents from Old Castle this week in the north of the county uh, beside the Cavan border. And they have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning so they can travel to the schools. And 60 kilometres away in Ballinabracky at the far end of the county where you can book a ball into Offaly, there are children doing the same thing. These children with some acute special needs are spending maybe an hour and a half on a bus to get to school. Now they're grateful that there is a school to go to in the first instance. But what they would like is the new school that has been promised to them now on several occasions. A school that is not just surviving in an old adapted, antiquated building where some students are having to attend in a different HSE-owned building a mile down the road because there isn't enough room on the site where they are. In response, Minister of State Jim Daly said the planning process for the school is ongoing. When pre-qualification is complete, the project will then be progressed to tender stage. A tender stage normally takes between seven and eight months to complete. And that response from Minister of State Jim Daly concludes our Loud Me the Oireachtas summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the Houses of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. Ken Murray should have a, another Loud Me the report for us after the break next week as the Oireachtas will be in recess uh, for St. Patrick's Week. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Now, let's go to Dundalk. And if you're in Dundalk this evening, you may be interested in going to the Tom on theatre. Unquiet Graves, uh, the story of the Glenan gang will be screened there at 8 o'clock with uh, questions and answers session afterwards. Let's hear about this. Margaret Irwin, Justice for the Forgotten Representative, is on the line. Good morning to you, Margaret, and thanks uh, for morning, joining Mike. us. Good to have yeah. you with us, uh, as always. Tell us uh, who the Glenan gang were, if you can, because uh, they were one of the most notorious organisations, if I can put it that way, on this island, responsible, it's thought, for the deaths of up to 120 people. That's right, yes. Um, they were the, the gang was basically made up of members of the security forces, uh, the RUC and the UDR, and also loyalist paramilitaries. And uh, they operated mainly around the Mid-Ulster area uh, between 1972 and 1978. But of course, they also uh, came south of the border. They came south to Dublin and Monaghan in '74. They came south to Dundalk in December 75 and to Castle Blaney in March 76 and also uh, to uh, Monaghan where they murdered John Francis Green in January of 75. Uh, And this is on top of all the other deaths that they carried out, mainly in the counties of Tyrone and Armagh and also the Miami Showband Mm. in County Downs. 
known, I, I think, at the time as the Murder Triangle, one of the darkest periods of history on this island. Uh, we were talking earlier on, of course, uh, about Bloody Sunday uh, and how there's so many grown-up people in this country today who have no real comprehension of what it was to live through the Troubles. Uh, they either weren't born or aren't old enough to remember, as uh, the case may be. Uh, but uh, on a occasion, uh, as we heard uh, as well, young people will say to you, you must be exaggerating it, but uh, there is no exaggerating what happened uh, at the hands of these people. As you yeah, say, many of them were agents absolutely. of the British state. And also, of course, uh, we, we can blame the history textbooks for not including these atrocities, as we have found out uh, very recently, that there is no mention that any that the Troubles had any impact in this jurisdiction. So, you know, we are raising that issue that there is this uh, deliberate amnesia uh, about atrocities in this in this part of the world, in this jurisdiction. And this comes back uh, to the idea, uh, the very real idea, that there was collusion between uh, those uh, who were officially agents of the British state and the British, uh, who were not o- officially agents of the British state and the British state itself. Well, that's right. Yes, yeah. Um, so um, the film, anyway, tonight. I have to tell you, uh, Mike. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it's booked out. Oh, okay. uh, Because mm-hmm. I have just found out from Antoine Theatre that, in fact, it's booked out. But hopefully, we will get uh, the opportunity to have it screened again uh, if there's uh, if there is demand for it. Because uh, obviously, um, if, if people can't go along tonight, maybe they would like to go along again. So if there's enough demand obviously we would see about um, putting on another screening Um, so um, Sean Murray is the producer and director Mm. uh, from Belfast and uh, it's it's a very powerful film it was shown in Dublin on Wednesday night in the Irish Film Institute it's been shown in many many places over the last since the beginning of March basically Okay, well, uh, come back uh, and let us know if uh, there is another date, if uh, people can uh, attend at another time, Margaret. And uh, That's right, and it's been shown in Monaghan, I know. Yep. I think it's towards the end of the month anyway. I can I can let you know the exact date. I think it's the 29th. I'm not absolutely certain. All right, well, do let us know, because yeah. uh, I'm sure some of our listeners in Monaghan uh, would be as interested as people are obviously in Dundalk. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, uh, Margaret Irwin of uh, the Justice for the Forgotten Group. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, before we leave you for this week ahead of uh, the long weekend, uh, let's touch base with you. Marie is back with us uh, with some more of uh, the calls and comments that have been coming to us. I am indeed. Michael Theresa from County Meath was in touch and she thinks it's a disgrace sending Irish ministers all around the globe on St. Patrick's Day. She says when you have people living rough on the streets or people on trolleys in hospitals, she thinks that the money should be spent at home. Okay. Anna phoned in and Anna says that just in relation to um, your coverage of um, the Taoiseach's visit to the States and Donald Trump, she says, Michael, I've been listening about Donald Trump since he got elected and nobody thought he would last as long as he has, but he has. Mm. So maybe he is doing something right for his constituents, if okay, you like. Well, I, I, know, I, think, uh, I think a few people thought that he, he would last uh, as long as he has. And uh, I think a lot of people would argue uh, the first point as well and would suggest that uh, because 
of uh, trips like uh, the Taoiseach's trip to Washington this week. Uh, there is probably a lot more money in uh, the country because of the interest that it generates in this country and uh, the business that it generates as a result. Uh, but hold that for, hold for a moment, Marie, uh, because uh, today is World Consumer Rights Day. It's an important day in the CCPC calendar. The CCPC is uh, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, a statutory body whose role it is uh, to enforce competition and consumer protection law in Ireland. And Anya Carroll, spokesperson for the CCPC, is on the line. Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Morning, Uh, Patrick's weekend uh, is, I suppose, traditionally the end of the hibernation period. A lot of people going away this weekend and if they're not going away they're probably planning on going away later in the year. We'll talk about holidays in a a moment but perhaps uh, you'd tell us a a little bit about what's hoped to be achieved by this day here in Ireland today. So yeah, World Consumer Rights Day so it started in 1983 um, and it's kind of, it's it's a day that is uh, sort of marked by consumer bodies and the kind of consumer movement throughout the world. Um, and it actually is a, it's an anniversary of a speech that JFK gave in US Congress talking about the importance of consumer rights. Um, and a, a, on this day, a lot of, of bodies similar to the CCPC around the world and, and maybe even, in fact, you know, kind of voluntary consumer groups sort of use it as a chance to demand that the rights of consumers are respected and protected. Mm. Um, and I think it is very important. You know, we've had um, significant consumer kind of issues in Ireland in recent years. Um, and it is very important that, you know, um, as a kind of as a nation that we kind of continue to ensure that. And in recent years, I, kept on the agenda. in recent years, I think it's probably true to say that our, our rights have strengthened and there's more awareness of our rights. Certainly, it's more awareness. And we would see that definitely in terms of use of our service as well at CCPC. So we have a website, uh, ccpc.ie. Um, and we're, we've gone from sort of, you know, many years ago, sort of half a million visits to our website a year over to, you know, one and a half million um, last year. So there's a lot of people when they have problems mm. um, with traders or with businesses, they're very proactive about going and looking for help. And we also operate a consumer helpline as well. Um, and we receive kind of in excess of 40,000 calls to that um, a year. And this is from people who are actually in the middle of mm. having a problem with a retailer and they contact us looking for information in terms of how they might get it resolved. So I think as consumers in Ireland, we are very proactive about making sure that if we have a problem, you know, that we get it sorted out to our own satisfaction and we don't kind of walk away from these things. Um, and I think it's really important. You know, we all work hard for our money and when you spend money on a good or a service and it's not performing to the, to, the um, to what you expected, um, it is really important. Okay, talk to us about holidays, if you will, Anya, because uh, if uh, you book a holiday through one of uh, the traditional operators, you've a contracted service and you've rights that come with that. But do you need to do that or are you as well doing it on your own, going solo and taking whatever chances you may face? I suppose the thing, the rise of the internet has kind of, you know, given uh, given us all sorts of options in terms of booking holidays. You know, so we book low cost flights, and then we might book accommodation directly ourselves. Um, but there are protections, as you said, when you do book a package holiday, and maybe package holidays aren't as uh, popular as they used to be. But when you buy a package holiday, you have these very specific protections, and there's contracts in place with the provider that they are going to they are going to deliver on the contract that you that you have entered into. Um, and you get a written copy of the contract and it gives you all of the information about, well, this is the accommodation you're going to have, this is the time of your flight, this is how you're going to be transported from the airport to your accommodation and back, this is any excursions that are included. And if something changes, they have 
certain legal obligations to, mm. to you as a consumer. So like, instance, like an airline strike? Exactly. So if it's an airline strike and they have committed to you that they are going to get you to this destination, then they have to organise an alternative for you. And if they can't organise an alternative for you, then they have to give you your money back. Mm. So uh, where this often comes into play is in terms of accommodation. So somebody books a package holiday, they've booked a particular uh, hotel or a particular apartment, and then maybe a couple of months in advance, the tour operator gets in touch and says, actually, that accommodation isn't available. Well, in that case, they have to give you uh, accommodation that's an equivalent or superior quality, um, or if they can't and they're giving you a lower grade accommodation then they have to refund you the difference in terms of price Okay but what's the difference uh, in that and doing it independently because if you book a, a flight and there's an airline strike uh, are you not entitled to the next alternative flight to that uh, destination uh, and likewise if you book a accommodation and there's a problem when you get there have you not got a, a contract in place with whoever you've already paid? You absolutely do, but where I suppose things can go wrong for consumers if they have booked all of these different elements separately is if something goes wrong with one part, they're committed to the other part in terms of contract. So I'll give you a practical example. Imagining a scenario where there is an airline strike and you have booked a villa in the south of Spain for you and your extended family of 12 people and you said we're going to be there on the 1st of August for two weeks and you can't get there till the 5th of August. You have a contract in place to say that you're going to be there on the 1st of August. You may not be able to cancel that accommodation. And the importance of having travel insurance really comes into play here because Mm. if you do have to cancel something and if it's covered by your policy, you may be able to claim some money back. And with a lot of uh, self-catering accommodation, you may be able to cancel and get some money back up to a certain point. But it's very, if it's very close to the day of your booking, you might find that the um, accommodation owner is not willing to give you uh, any money back because they're saying, well, they're not going to be able to rent it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does happen. Uh, and we do get consumers contacting our helpline about that where they've been unable to, to get to the destination or maybe a family member becomes ill and they have to cancel the holiday and the accommodation provider is refusing to, to give them their money back. So it's really important if you're booking accommodation... Mm-hmm yourself find out what would happen in the event that you have to cancel. What do you say to people who say I don't take out holiday insurance uh, because I've gone away a million times and I've never needed it? Uh, I think with any insurance um, often (laughs) it's when something goes wrong that you wish you had it. Uh, It depends on your circumstances. If you're a young person travelling solo um, and I don't know say for instance your money gets stolen that might not be a big deal to you. Uh, or if you lose your bag, that might not be a big deal. But if you're travelling with your family um, or if you're travelling with a family member who maybe is a little bit older and, you know, you're concerned that if they got ill when they were abroad, uh, they might need to get sort of medical treatment. These are the kinds of things that you need to be thinking about. Um, And I think that's one of the things, often what does happen to people on holidays is maybe the less serious things like the phone gets stolen. Um, Having travel insurance in a circumstance like that, you might not get back the full value of your phone, but you might get back some value of your phone. Um, but a lot of calls that we get from consumers who have taken out travel insurance would be where they're, you know, they've had to cancel their holiday. And that happens. You know, life happens. People get ill. Uh, you know, events happen in families that mean that, that they can't travel. Mm. 
Um, and it's really important that if you are taking out travel insurance that you consider all of the kind of exclusions as well in the policy because there are a lot of exclusions in terms of travel insurance well, uh, as well. I think that might be one of the more important points. Uh, you only have rights of, uh, as a consumer if you're aware of them, <laughs> if you understand exactly. what I mean. All right, we have making to... sure that you like, you'd look, do look. Yeah. Uh, you can't read every mm. single page of a contract, mm. <laughs> of an insurance contract. Um, you know, most people would maybe understand them in any case. Um, but uh, I know I certainly wouldn't. Okay. But the, the kind of the high level of, of what's covered, making sure that, you know, you're, you're, you're happy that it actually fulfills your needs. Okay, Anya, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining Thank us. You. Anya Carroll, spokesperson for the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, brings our programme to its conclusion today, indeed, for this week. Hope you have a, a lovely long weekend and a happy St. Patrick's Day. And God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.